Welcome to Solitaire Politics. I'm Julie Roginski. I'm here with my co-host, Emily. I am so beyond excited that we're actually doing this. We've talked about doing something like this for ages, and it started with our little weekly segment called Salty Politics, which you produce and which I host. But um, it's amazing that you and I are actually doing this together. I think we're going to have a great show this week, and we have a great couple of shows lined up in the next couple of weeks. I know. It's really fun to see how what we kind of started at Fox with the clapback, or actually rewind me writing intros for you for outnumbered so that was crazy the best part about this is that i was on outnumbered which is a show at fox news which airs uh, at noon on fox and it's a panel show and uh you had written for me and i had no idea that anybody was writing for me or really who anybody was behind the scenes except for our producers who we saw on the floor and the camera guys and then it turns out that one day you pitched a show to foxnews.com about me that turned out to be the clapback, which I loved doing and you loved producing, and I really miss it. And I'm hoping this podcast and our Salty Politics um, web series is going to be something even more awesome than that. I mean, if anything's a sign of it, we got Russia mad at us with the clapback. So, I mean, That's when, true. when we do put our heads together, great things happen. So the funny thing about both of us is that um, I used to work at Fox. You still work at Fox. Um, we are both liberals at Fox, um, or at least I was, and you continue to be. But to me, and I don't know what your thoughts on this are, the nice thing about working at Fox for me is that I live on the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan, which for people who don't know New York City that well is a bastion of liberalism, even more so than the city itself. And um, what was nice about my years at Fox, which I, I, I look back on fondly, is that I was able to talk to people who I never in my life would have talked to, people who had completely different opinions from me. I work in democratic politics every day, so I never would have met Trump supporters um, in my day-to-day life had I not spent all those years at Fox. And I know you still have that experience working at Fox today where you produce people all the time that you have nothing in common with politically, but get to know those people and they're all fantastic for the most part. Right, and I think that's one of the biggest things. Really, once you have a conversation with somebody and get to know them, on a personal level, that's when you can kind of dig in and bridge gaps and talk about differences, have uncomfortable conversations, but I think it's getting somewhere rather than just living in an echo chamber. Yeah, the other thing that I think is pretty cool about us is that um, I cannot be more squarely in the Generation X category. Um, I have uh, a six-year-old son at home. You cannot be more squarely in the millennial um, category. You are not yet married, don't have kids. So we have kind of very different life experiences to that extent. But it's really pretty miraculous when we talk about politics, how much I think we have in common, not just ideologically, but also just in terms of our worldview, despite um, the generational generational gap, I guess, between us, even though I don't really think of it that way, because I think we're both pretty... I, I still think I'm 25, so which is not really the case. I mean, I still kind of think I'm 18 sometimes, so <laughs> it, it totally works out. But speaking of conversation, uh, the conversation we had with Steve Kornacki, who is our first guest, was pretty great. Yeah, I mean, uh, which will come up in the show in a, couple of, in a couple of minutes, but what was so great about having Steve Kornacki of MSNBC on uh, as our first guest to discuss his book, The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism is, um, as you'll see in the conversation in a couple of minutes, he really outlined, I think, very clearly what um, kind of environment led us to this day today. But also what was so interesting for me is I, and we touch on it in our interview, I lived it. I was 19 when Bill Clinton got elected. Um, I was, I believe, 21 when Newt Gingrich became the Speaker of the House for the first time that Republicans took over the House in 40 years. 
You were, I, I think, four years old when Bill Clinton, when Newt Gingrich became speaker and two? Yep, <laughs> I'm born in 1990, so we definitely have different, similar and different points of views because a lot of Kornacki's book was a revelation kind of to me and to see where a sex scandal came from, that it wasn't actually Clinton, it was before that, and a lot of different things that we kind of fleshed out in the interview, which was really interesting. Yeah, and also what, what's interesting to me in, um, about that is we talked in some ways, as you said, it's got sex scandal, Monica Lewinsky um, and Bill Clinton, and my views, I'm exactly the same age that Monica Lewinsky is. My views back then about that scandal um, where I really thought Monica Lewinsky was an adult, because I thought I was an adult when I was 23, 24, and, um, and she was a consenting adult, and which she was, but um, my views back then about that, I thought, really evolved over the last 20-some years, where uh, I think it's a lot more complicated than I thought it was at the time. At the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. It should be not a big deal to anybody but Mrs. Clinton, but it turns out I actually think Bill Clinton may not have behaved in the most gallant way possible as the boss of a young woman. Um, so it's interesting how my views evolved over the last 20 years um, from that perspective, and, and we touched on that with Steve as well, but also interesting that you um, really read this book. I read this book as a Dear Diary. You read this book as a historic text, which I thought was really interesting, historical text, I should right. say. Right. It would be funny as we were reading it, I would just tell Julia Point, and I'm like, can you believe this? You just roll your eyes. You're like, ugh, don't remind me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm still getting over it. Please, I'm still getting over Ken Starr. All right. Well, coming up in a few minutes, um, we will have our interview with Steve Kornacki of MSNBC. Most importantly, we also... Um, have a couple of features, I think, on this podcast that we're trying to do, which is that every guest that comes on, we ask them for their favorite drink. Um, and so feel free to make fun of Steve Kornacki, anybody who's listening to this, and tweet him about his favorite drink, because we certainly did. Um, and then at the end of the show, we're going to talk about what makes us salty this week in politics. And then we go in on two truths and a lie with our guest, and I was surprised by his lie, or his truth. His truth. Actually, I guessed it, I think, but I was surprised about it, too, um, especially if somebody who has a little bit in common with him about the truthful nature of what he said. Um, all right, here we go. Coming up, Steve Kornacki, author of The Red and the Blue, MSNBC. Thank you for joining us today. First of all, how long have you guys known each other? It's very interesting. Steve and I have known each other, I don't know, Steve, what, 15, 20 years? I, says, I, yeah, I, I got to Jersey in 2002. 2002, so, yeah. so since 2002. And I first met Steve, and I think you were sleeping on a mattress somewhere in Hoboken? Or yeah. Some, some... Oh, I know. I started in, in uh, Woodbridge, New Jersey. Oh. That's even, right. Even, even more glamorous. Yeah. Even more glamorous. Where the parkway and the turnpike meet. Of was, course. <laughs> home of James E. McGreevy. That's right. Um, but uh, the funny thing, Steve, before we even get into your book, which was fantastic, Emily and I both read it, and it was just an unbelievable read and brought back a lot of memories for those of us who lived through the 90s. But um, what was amazing to me is the story of how you got started in politics. Because <laughs> you and I talked about the fact that you got started in politics. I think you were at BU, which is also my alma mater, and you were interviewing for a job. And why don't you finish telling that story? Uh, yeah, well, fr fresh out of college and trying to figure out what to do. Um, and yeah, I think it, it, we, we think of like internet journalism as having been here forever right. um, and taking it for granted. But in, in 2002, um, this was a, it was a novelty, the idea that, you know, we, there was a sense that newspapers would, would migrate there eventually, but they, they, they put their stories up online and you didn't have social media and all that stuff. So there was, um, I was looking for jobs in journalism. Um, I was working in the overnight shift at, uh, New England cable news, you know, outside Boston, 24 hour regional, 
um, news channel, just writing news copy for their morning news. Didn't really like it that much. And um, I was looking around, there was a listing on the, the career website for, uh, for Boston University. And um, it was for a, it, it, an online, it's for, it's for New Hampshire, they said at the time. It said New Hampshire, cover the 2004 New Hampshire primary, get in on the ground floor, cover you know, the candidates. You don't need to know the policy well. We just, we're covering the politics of, we're covering the process, the politics. And you know, must have a car. You know. So I wrote this like long letter, not knowing who this person was. It was politicsnh.com. And just, I was kind of like eager for some kind of a, a chance at something here. Um, didn't hear back for like two weeks, kind of, kind of gave it up and then got this reply one day, um, from this person saying, you know, unfortunately the job's been filled, but we have an opening in New Jersey. Would you be interested? And I knew next to nothing about New Jersey, you know, grew up in Massachusetts, drove through a few times, you know, um, and that was about it. And, um, but I was, you know, I was like, well, this could be kind of interesting, right? You're, you're, you know, um, and the interview was, um, he told me that the, the person who signed this thing, uh, signed it under the name Wally. Well, the Edge um, told me the interview, he could interview me on AOL Instant Messenger because he was anonymous. This was an anonymously owned and edited site. What, first, what was your AIM screen name? I had to get one because I, I didn't, okay. I had, I was, in fact, I was actually, this is in the middle of summer too. I remember I was at my, my uncle uh, has a, a beach store in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. So I was there during the day and um, my cousin, who was like 10 years old at the time, um, and this is, this is no Wi-Fi back then. This is so you had to go find like an internet cafe. You had, the you had to go find a house right that had right. dial-up. So he had like a friend's house uh, in Portland, Maine, who had a dial-up. So my ten-year-old right. cousin, and I drove to the friend's <laughs> house and got on their dial-up. Had to download all this whole thing and just to have his, his interview with this like you know Charlie's Angels kind of thing. And um, and it was just it, it was one of those it, it, when, it, when I would tell people about it, they would you know. They'd be like, this is the sketchiest thing I've ever heard. How could you ever do this? But I interviewed for it. The, the, the guy had done some research on me just online through Google or whatever. He knew some basics about me. Clearly, you know, and I, I was talking to enough people I knew kind of um, who knew enough about New Jersey politics to tell me the site did have credibility with people in New Jersey politics. And then, you know, he offered me the job, sent up a check, like a, a good faith check for like a thousand bucks to prove he was for real. It cleared. I said, well, there must be something to this. So I went down there and I was like, you know what? If it doesn't work, I'll, I'll move back in a couple of months and you know, chalk it up to experience. But um, yeah, within a week, I was interviewing um, Bob Torricelli, who was in battle with U.S. Senator in 2002. And, uh, and I, did, it was three, I did about three, a little more than three years in New Jersey. It's the three funnest years I had covering politics. So the story that people may not know is that Wally Edge, who's the person that interviewed, interviewed you, um, anonymously is actually David Wildstein, right. who um, was, was <laughs> now maybe not, right. now maybe people have heard of him <laughs> right. responsible for um, the time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee um, recipient, I guess, of the email, um, but was involved in Bridgegate. But I spoke to him about this interview actually before um, before you came over. And he said what made him hire you was actually that you told him you played John Silver, yeah. <laughs> who'd, yeah. run, who'd run for governor in Massachusetts in 1990. And I guess, how old were you when that was going on? I was on? sixth grade. That, yeah. was, that was kind of my introduction to politics. And he said right. he wanted to hire you on the spot because you got in trouble because John Silver, people may not know, was kind of known as the one-armed bandit because um, he only had one arm. And I guess you decided to come into your... Well, I, was just, I didn't know. I was you know, 11 years old. I didn't know any better. And I, you know, yeah. And for, I mean, it was that, you know, uh, but John Silver had, uh, you know, um, uh, one arm and I... I Thought I played the character literally, and I believe me, the teacher did not like that. And Hilarious. the other thing about Silver was, um, 
uh, he was he had uh, very um, uh, colorful vocabulary. That's true. And so to be a sixth grader and to play John Silver to be in character meant you could say things that the average you know sixth grader uh, didn't couldn't get away with. So. so- the one thing that you may not know, actually, Emily and I have known each other for a long time, and she um, was the producer on my show at foxnews.com, and, and she was a uh, writer, I think, for Outnumbered, a show that I was on on Fox. But um, you guys have actually known each other longer, which you may not realize, but... I knew you before I knew Julie. That's true. Uh, so I was a PA at MSNBC, so right when Chris ended up... Okay. Went to you. Oh, yeah, I yeah. was uh, printing scripts and uh, changing the bakery platter. Right, <laughs> he inherited. Now, was that the transition when we went to uh, we we switched to Dunkin' Donuts? It was. It was when you still had the Starbucks. I think that was just happening as I was leaving. That was. This was my my signature initiative taking over the, from Chris Hayes. Was we switched to Dunkin' Donuts. Donuts but I just would play. house the like bakery platter afterwards. Yeah, because nobody like, would ever eat it on the set, right? And I was yeah. Like, great. This I would like eye it as I'm getting <laughs> the scripts. And I was just like, great, I'm going to eat this. But, <laughs> but I do also remember uh, you starting game shows on Up, oh, yeah, which was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to do that? Um, thank you. And I, that was my favorite. Um, uh, we had two hours on, on Saturdays and Sundays. We had four hours on a you know, weekend morning. We were trying to figure out, I mean, you know, what do we do with this? And um, it, I, I had always liked, uh, I always liked game shows, just as I, the, especially the... The older ones that were, um, you know, from like the 80s, you know, the Press Your Luck and, um, you know, no Card Sharks, right? Things like this. Um, and it, it just occurred to me, I was like, you know, um, we've got all these pundits who come on every week and, and people come on our show. And they're great. I thank, for, thank them for doing it. And uh, they come on, people see them on TV all week. But it's sort of like, well, there's a lot going on in the world. Let's, let's put them to the test a little bit. How do we, how do, we do that? And, and I was like, well, let's, let's have a little fun with it, too. Like, this is not a, a real serious thing. Well... But, like, let's do a, a sort of current political news of the week trivia thing. Let's dress it up as, like, one of these, like, really cheesy, like, you know, 1970s, you, 80s game shows. You would dress up, too. I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. We did the, right, like, the, the... Okay. Some of those hosts from, if you go back and look, like, on YouTube or something, you can see, like, they had the really loud jackets. The, they had these uh, wand microphones. They're really thin. <laughs> They're, like, yep. two feet long and really thin. Um, and it, they'd come out, and, and then... Um, you know, we had like the, the really like cheesy prize package music. I think you also, their prizes were like street meat. Yes. It was, was, a, it was the grand prize. If you got the bonus question right, you got a $50 gift card to a, a gift card to a food cart uh, somewhere in the, in the Midtown area. Food carts take gift cards? Uh, they did. They wow. did for us. They were, oh, nice. We, we, I remember taking a trip over and the guy, hey, if you give them 50 bucks, they'll give you a gift <laughs> card, you know? So uh, Nice. Right so the one, the one thing I have to say, I don't know what the rules at MSNBC are. It always used to irritate me, Fox, that we'd never be able to have a drink on air. So we all ask our guests always what they want to drink and what their favorite drink is. I'm not going to make fun of you. No, just gonna, everybody gonna, does. <laughs> I'm just going to put this out there. Yeah, I'm used to I, it. That I'm here <laughs> in my hot little hands have a 12-pack <laughs> Cans, I might add, of Bud Light, which I actually don't know how to open because it's been a long time. I mean, the, the bottles are a little fancier. The, you know, yeah. we were, we're, we're class all the way here. It's all oh, refrigerated too. Oh, refrigerated. Yeah, yeah. Don't say I didn't take good care of you. So we could just pop open our Bud Light as we continue this conversation. Um, I didn't think you guys would have to drink it too. Now I feel guilty. I, I thought you'd have your own favorites. No, then, no, no, no. Uh, we're here for the long haul with you. So now I've inflicted this on you. Yeah. I, I feel well. You have. Cheers. Yeah, there cheers. you go. Cheers. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the book while we drink because. Mm-hmm. Yes. Talking about you getting rich and Bill Clinton wants to make me drink. Um, tell, me about the, tell me about the thesis of the book. The book, to me, um, I'll just tell you, I read it. I was 19, in 1992, I was 19. 
when Bill Clinton got elected, it was the first presidential I'd ever voted in. Mm. I was actually living in Boston at the time. Um, and that whole don't stop thinking about tomorrow period um, really resonated with people like me who are 19 and we'd only really known the Reagan Bush years. Right. And so to have a Democrat come into office after all these years of, of 12 years of just Republican rule, especially my entire childhood and young adolescence, I think for me was just huge. And by the time I finished reading your book, I remember how exhausting that period was. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it is. I, I, it's, it's the 90s were, I, I think a lot of people remember the 90s for the strong economy. You know, there was, there was one war, the Gulf War at the start of the decade, and it went quicker than anybody thought it ever would. Um, the ground war lasted less than 100 hours. You know, Bush Sr., who was the president at the time, said, you know, by God, We've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. It was this triumphant moment for America. Um, you know, the, the, the tech boom, dot com, all this stuff. So we remember the 90s that way. But the politics were, politics in the 90s was a series of, of wars, really, political wars throughout the decade. And I, I think it's, 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 it's Bill Clinton, as you say, it's the first Democratic president in a dozen years. Um, this, this idea had taken hold in American politics by the start of the 90s that the Republicans had a lock on the presidency. You know, Reagan hadn't just won, he won 49 states in 1984. Bush Sr. got 40 in 1988. I mean, these were landslide elections like we don't have anymore. And there was this sense in the Democratic Party they just couldn't win in this country anymore. And then along comes Bill Clinton, and he wins. So that was like, this was a major achievement. And there was a generational component. This is the first time you have a baby boomer president. So, you know, Bush, Reagan, they'd all been that World War II generation. So there's a change over there as well. And, and so you've got a Democratic president, and he comes in with big majorities in the Congress. The other thing that's new is when Clinton becomes president, you got Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich at that point was technically the number two Republican in the House. But Gingrich had changed the Republican Party over the decade or so before Bill Clinton got elected. He had changed the Congressional Republican Party. Um, because if, if the Republicans supposedly had a lock on the presidency... The Congress was supposedly the permanent Democratic Congress. Republicans couldn't win this. They were 80 seats in the, minor, in the minority. And Gingrich had basically turned the Republicans on Capitol Hill into this much more sort of well-oiled machine in his mold. They were they, you know, partisan combat. You don't compromise with Democrats. You're not going to get out of the minority if you, if you make deals. If you give the Democrats half of what they want, you got to fight them. you got to make really big, clear contrasts with them, really dramatic stands. And, and so Gingrich has sold the Republicans on this for the decade before. Bill Clinton comes in in 93, and now for the first time, this Gingrich approach is sort of unleashed on a Democratic president. And that's the collision. And that's the collision, I think, that sets off. You know, Bill Clinton's first two years are, are really tumultuous. He has Hillary Clinton try to do health care reform. It collapses. He passes a tax hike. Not a single Republican supports it. They call it the largest tax increase in world history. Republican Revolution in 94, then you get the government shutdown in 95, Clinton's comeback in 96, you know, Lewinsky and impeachment in 98, 99, and, and, and yeah, I think it was exhausting for people. And the other thing it did, though, was it, it, it forced people to choose sides. It forced people to see the Republican Party as, as the party of Newt, the Democratic Party as the party of Bill Clinton and the baggage that came with that, and to decide how they sorted that out in their own minds. And what it left us with is, I think, the enduring symbol of the decade is that election map from 2000 almost dead even, almost a perfect tie, red states, blue states, red America, blue America. No one had ever thought of the country. No one had thought of those colors as political colors before. And I think it's kind of the framework we've had ever and, since. And also, just to, to add, not really wavering, right? So what's so quaint about reading about the early 90s is 
or even the late 80s, is how much George Bush actually cared about the deficit and about bringing it down to the point where he would go against his own party's ideology to do that. By 2000, I think, you'd never have people crossing lines that way, except for the war, obviously, but um, because I think it really hardened positions that people weren't necessarily going to either work together for the betterment of the country or even cross their own ideological spectrum to do something that they thought was in the right interest of the country. And that, I think that's the other collision. Before there's a Gingrich-Clinton collision, there's a Gingrich-Bush collision, right. Bush Sr. And it's over taxes. Taxes is the, is the big fundamental question because Bush embodied this old um, sort of spirit of, of republicanism. You know, he technically claimed Texas as his home state, but he was a Yankee Republican. His father was a senator from Connecticut, very sort of patrician, upper crust New England. And the idea there was that you, it's, it's almost this like town father's model of governing. We make wise decisions. We make prudent decisions. He used the word, he used the word prudent. He was not an ideologue. He was not an attack dog politician. Um, but to get to the vice presidency, which he was, he was vice president of Ronald Reagan, the, the Republican Party had turned to, to the right under Reagan. Bush was his vice president, moved himself to the right to position himself to run for president. And then in 1988, um, as the Republican nominee, to try to fire up that Reagan base, which doubted him, which doubted he was really one of them, he gives that very famous promise. He says, Congress will push me, and I will say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. And it brings the House down at the Republican convention. And then two years later, as president, he's looking at massive deficits, you know, the economy's slowing down, and he says, you know, this, who he really is, is he's saying the prudent thing, the responsible thing here is we need to raise taxes. We need to get the deficit under control. And the old model of the Republican Party was to go along with him. And Bob Dole, who's the Republican leader in the Senate, goes along with him. Bob Michael, who was number one to Gingrich's number two in the House, his nickname was Mr. Nice Guy, goes along with him. All the Republican ranking members on the committees go along and they hold a big ceremony um, in the Rose Garden, the White House, the Democratic leaders in Congress, the Republican leaders in Bush, and they announced they've come up with a deal to raise taxes to get the deficit under control. And one doesn't go along with them, and it's Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich says, he's the number two Republican in the House at the time, he says, this is a fundamental issue for Republicans. We don't raise taxes. We don't do deals with the Democrats to raise taxes. We cut taxes. We can't in good conscience vote for this deal. And he leads a rebellion on the House floor, October 1990, and this first deal gets killed on the House floor. Republicans kill it. They're the minority party. They kill their own president's deal. Bush has walked way out on a limb to do this deal, and Gingrich basically saws it off. And Bush then has to go back, and he cuts a new deal, this time almost all with Democrats. Almost. And from that moment on, Republicans took a lesson from that. They said, um, we're never going to raise taxes. In 93, Bill Clinton, they, they, because the, there's this other thing where like, you know, the economy went, to, went south in the early 90s, and, and Republicans' minds... It all got connected. Bush raised taxes. The economy went south. Bush lost re-election in 92. Therefore, that's what happened when he raised taxes. And you, you've not had, in a generation since, a Republican vote for raising taxes. Interesting. Um, I have to tell you, though, when I was reading your book, I've really felt that a lot of what's... I'm a millennial. So for what we're seeing in the media now, how Trump and a lot of this negativity and just this divide is somehow new. And it's like it wasn't ever like this. But reading your book, what struck me is... Yes, it was. It was pretty much just as tribal, I guess. What's your opinion? Because I feel like in all of us working in the media and today, I feel like, especially looking at this, like, oh, this is so new, what we're going through is just awful. It's right. morally awful. But no, 
I, I don't know. Because this was a lesson for me who just knew basic info, but learning how tribal it was and how already a lot of the foundation had been set for the anti-immigration, a lot of this rhetoric, I, I had no idea was set up at this time. I think what, what was, there have been like a lot of what we see now, there have been strains of in American history. I mean, the, you could, the cliche almost is to say we fought a civil war, but you know, we fought a civil war. So I mean, th these things have gone deep, they've been ugly before, and there have been these moments of just like profound division in this country. I think what was unique about the 90s and what I try to, try to sort of, uh, the story I try to tell in the book is that all of this division, all these dividing lines in the country ended up sort of syncing up with political party. And I think that was the new thing about the 1990s, um, where by the end of the decade, party had almost become, um, it was almost a form of identity for people, um, cultural identity. Whereas party used to be, I, I guess I'm a Republican, and, and what does that mean? Are you a liberal Republican from the Northeast? Are you a, you know, isolationist from the Midwest? They, they had all these like all this ideological diversity used to be under that under that banner. And the Democrats you used to say I'm a Democrat, and you could mean you know, I'm a union guy from the Northeast. No, I'm a I'm a a, a, a very conservative uh, you know Southerner. Uh, no, you know I'm a, an African American who was enfranchised because of the Democratic Party. Well, I mean like. It used to mean all sorts of different things. And by the end of the 90s, you could just look at the, the basic cultural and demographic and regional fault lines in this country, and they sorted out with party. The South, the white South, was, was heavily Republican. You know, the college-educated Northeast, increasingly Democratic. It just, the, the lines were very clear by the end of the decade. So who do you think, and what struck me was the tangential characters who are not so tangential because it turns out that history um, made them a lot more relevant than at the time, you look at somebody like Pat Buchanan. Yeah. Was Pat Buchanan the harbinger for Donald Trump? I mean, you look at where the Republican Party is now, and you look at where the Republican Party was when George Bush was their standard bearer, and then you have Pat Buchanan not winning New Hampshire, but everybody by default thought he won New Hampshire by virtue of doing so well in a state yeah. that was in, you'd think, was in George Bush's bailiwick because he is a Yankee yeah. Republican, as you said. And here comes um, Pat Buchanan talking about nativism, talking about immigration, talking about all the issues that you see Republicans talking about today that Republicans back then didn't really talk about. In fact, Reagan was the architect of the 1986 amnesty bill. Right. And here comes Pat Buchanan essentially jettisoning Reaganism to some extent. Um, was he the harbinger? Was Ross Perot the harbinger? Who I, was it? Yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think Buchanan is just for the, the policy platform. It's in, in some cases, it's word for word. What, right. what Buchanan was running on in the 1990s um, it, it turned into what Trump ran on in, in 2016. Um, I think there was some Perot in it in that Perot in the 90s showed there was sort of a way to crash the two parties. Um, you could take money, you could take uh, some sort of celebrity, you could find new avenues through this expanding media environment to bypass the traditional gatekeepers. You know, Ross Perot in 92 basically announced his candidacy on Larry King Live on CNN. And this this is pre-social media, this viral movement sprouted up in the spring of 92 that got Ross Perot on the ballot everywhere. I mean, in Texas, the state of Texas, um, two months after he says this on Larry King Live, they submit a quarter of a million ballot signatures to get this guy on the ballot. Like, like that's, that, so I think Trump was, in, Trump's sort of sense of politics was informed by that. It was informed by Gingrich um, and, and, and a lot of what Gingrich did. But I think, I think Buchanan, the platform 
is Buchanan because Buchanan was running on you know unfair trade deals. We're going to rip them up. We're going to revive American manufacturing. We're going to have he called it a fence. Trump called it a wall, but we're going to have a fence along the Mexican border. We're going to have a moratorium for five years on all immigration because there's just been too much cultural change in this country. He railed against you know multiculturalism, political correctness. Um, it, it, it was you, you just look at it, and you say this is what Buchanan did a gener- what Trump did a generation later. Um, and what Buchanan was revealing, he ran three times in the course of the decade for president. He revealed that there was a bigger market for that on the Republican side than the Republican Party at the time would ever have admitted or ever believed. Um, he kind of revealed it. He forced them to kind of confront it. And his, his, the closest he came to the nomination was in 96, the second time he ran. And he actually won a couple primaries. And, and, and there was this moment, brief, but there was a moment for a couple of weeks there when Republican leaders had to stare at this possibility of, is this party, are our voters actually going to nominate this guy? And they mobilized around Bob Dole, the establishment, and they were able to stop him. But I kept thinking of that 20 years later in 2016, because that moment came with Trump. You know, the Republican leaders are saying, are are, are the voters of our party actually going to do this? But then they did it. But you know, I'm going to read you a quote from your book. Um, Jim Squires, who was Mm. spokesperson, Mm -hmm. said this this incredible quote, which really struck me. He said, the next time the man on the white horse comes, he may not be so benign, speaking about Ross Perot, he could be a real racial hater or a divider of people. And I read that and I said, oh my God, this is just absolutely, I think Democrats feel very strongly, Republicans would disagree, but this is what a lot of Democrats feel very strongly is happening to the country with Donald Trump. And to me, Perot was kind of Trump-esque. I mean, he was this yep. bombastic guy, a celebrity in his own right. Um, I think, practically speaking, a real billionaire, but um, a, a rich guy who really had built a successful business and didn't come from the political establishment. And again, was a benign guy. I mean, I remember, and this is just going back to my own recollection of this, kind of seemed as a joke. Nobody really took him that seriously. But you had celebrities like Cher, I remember, was obsessed with Ross Perot. Yeah. Willie Nelson liked Willie him. N- yeah. I mean, all these random celebrities were coming out of the yeah. woodwork. Um, and I remember thinking about Ross Perot. Okay, this guy's not going to be president. He's kind of a one-off. And Saturday Night Live had these great skits about him. But um, you think about the fact that Ross Perot really kind of also, in addition to Buchanan ideologically, from a stylistic standpoint, seems to me, said the template for a rich celebrity coming in who was benign for a man who may not be so benign and now is president in the United States. The, it's the idea of, it's the, the contradiction in terms, but the populist rich guy. Right. And that's what, I mean, that's, Perot had this like um, Texan, he had that like kind of like Texan salesman, you know, um, he had very folksy expressions and he could, what he was, the atmosphere he walked into in, into the early 1990s was one of, there was a, a deep vein of frustration in the electorate. The economy was not in a good place. Um, it was it was in this this sort of period of, of transition. You know, the manufacturing base was in decline. The, the information age, um, you know, unemployment. We had a recession of the early 1990s. There was the sense that the United States, maybe especially with the Cold War ending, was going to be eclipsed economically. Back then, it was Japan, but you know, China is, is what you could substitute now if you're trying to draw parallels between the two. And Perot stepped in, and there had been a series of scandals in Washington. There's been the Keating Five scandal, the House banking scandal. They were, they were bouncing, you know, members of Congress were bouncing hundreds of checks at the House bank. They weren't having to pay overdraft fees for them. Um, and Perot stepped in as this sort of, this, this, this appealing, plain-spoken guy who's, so on the one hand, he had the populist appeal there. He'd say, I got advice for these members of Congress, you know, go fly coach, lose your bags, carry your own luggage, you know, and, and, and he'd talk like that. Um, but he also had the, the, the fact that the guy was worth $3 billion. 
um, was a powerful signal to voters that he knew how to get things done. That's what Washington needs. Look how broken Washington is. Look how the economy is, is off track right now. Look how America's losing its place in the world. This is what these Washington politicians don't know, you know, what they're doing. This guy will set them straight. That was the core appeal of Perot. And in a way, that is what, what Trump was running. I mean, I alone can fix it, mm-hmm. is, a, is a Perot-like message. Now, I, I mean, Trump took the, took the message. It, it, there's some overlap there in terms of their message, too, in that, that Perot also hated trade deals. Perot hated NAFTA. Perot hated GATT, that sort of thing. So there was some overlap there as well. Um, but Trump, yes, he took it culturally in a direction Perot never went with it. Right. I also have to give credit, like, um, another point that you brought up was about how Newt Gingrich in the 80s used C-SPAN. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting and in how he kind of used the media and was one of the first people to kind of take advantage of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, I, I mean, just because now what the media is is quadruple. But the fact that I have to give him credit, unfortunately, but for realizing that. Well, yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great point because... Um, I think there's a, when I say there's a there's Gingrich parallels with Trump, um, that's a big one I think because Gingrich in the 1980s was a backbench member of the Republican Party in Congress, the minority party. He's a backbencher. His fellow Republicans don't take him seriously, and he's trying to get attention. And he's he knows he's not going to get his colleagues' attention by working with them on legislation. That's not going to be his model. He needs to get grassroots excitement. That's it's a, how do you get the attention of the grassroots? In the 1980s, you really didn't have cable news. CNN had just come around. Not many people watched it. There was you know no internet, no social media, no MS, no Fox. Um, he recognized there was a camera through C-SPAN on the floor of the House. And he felt, well, here's my chance. I'm going to start claiming time on the House floor late at night you know, when no one else wants it, no one else thinks it's worth anything, no one else is in the chamber to hear it, but the camera's there. And he starts, essentially, you'd, you'd almost recognize what he was doing as a cable news talk show. You know, he's, he's railing against national Democrats, he's railing against liberals, he's giving you his version of what conservatism is. He's got his friends doing it with him, he's got his guests, his co-hosts, whatever you want to call it. And they start getting, you know, people are, you know, cable every year, a couple million people in the 80s are getting cable boxes in their houses. They're scanning the dial at night, and a certain percentage of them land on C-SPAN. They start watching it, and they like it. And that's how Gingrich starts getting noticed by his colleagues, his Republican colleagues. They start getting mail. They start getting phone calls. They start hearing from their own voters, you know, who are taking this guy Newt seriously. These are Republican members who haven't taken him seriously at all. And so Gingrich found a way around what at the time was a very limited media atmosphere. He found his way around it through C-SPAN. And the straight line I think you can draw to Trump is... Trump comes along a generation later in a much more diverse media environment, but he still wanted to find a way around the gatekeepers, and he did it, I think, through Twitter. I think what C-SPAN was for, for Gingrich, Twitter ended up being for Trump. The question about Gingrich is, and this is somebody who, who does politics for a living, is you almost have to admire him because ideology went out the window, comedy went out the window, everything went out the window, everything was all about winning. And you know, you, you think about that from the perspective of somebody who was interested in getting a Republican majority for the first time in 40 years, nothing mattered other than winning, whether it was destroying Bob Michael, his own predecessor, or Jim Wright, um, the speaker at the time, or Bill Clinton to the extent that he tried and couldn't. Um, winning was it all, was all, that was all it was. And then you take that parallel again to what you hear about Donald Trump today, where Donald Trump was talking about Brett Kavanaugh, and he said, it doesn't matter, we won. So it doesn't really matter yeah. what I said about Brett Kavanaugh's accuser, we won. And Republicans respond to that. And Democrats, I think there's a lot of 
bringing it back to today, a lot of acrimony within the Democratic Party about whether when they go low, we go high, or whether when they go low, we go low also just to, to win. There's no question that Newt Gingrich would have gone as low as he wanted to. And as much as you could think he's a toxin on the body politic, or was to some extent, you could also admire him for the fact that he single-handedly restored the Republican Party on the Hill, I think, in ways that nobody else before him could. Mr. Nice Guy couldn't. Right. All these other nice guys who um, were his predecessors couldn't. It was Newt Gingrich who did it, no matter what his tactics were. And, and I think that's the thing that, that you have to say, too, just in terms of looking at Newt's rise. Um, a forgotten aspect is Democrats had controlled the House since 1954, and it wasn't even close. You know, we've got a midterm election in a couple of weeks where Democrats need to pick up 23 seats to get the House. It's totally doable. I don't know if they will, but it's, it's doable, and it's, it's completely within the realm of possibility. Elections in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, nobody was saying, hey, maybe the Republicans will get it this year. It was completely out of the question. It was just a question of how buried they'd be. And so in that atmosphere, the, the speaker's gavel becomes this, like, hereditary instrument that's one 70-year-old Democrat hands it down to another every 10 years, and that's kind of how the speaker's... And, and, and what happens is the, 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 the institution calcifies in a lot of ways. And what Gingrich was telling Republicans was there was an ideological component to it, but he was also telling them they are trampling all over you. They are taking their power for granted. They are abusing it. They are not thinking about you. They don't care about you. They don't have to care about you. He was You're, right. Right. And that was the thing that happened in the 80s, I think, was the Democrats gave him openings to basically prove himself right. They did it, you know, they, they, they chose in 1985, there'd been a spe- this congressional election in Indiana. The outcome was in dispute. Democrats had the power if they wanted to use it to vote to seat their own candidate. They did. Um, you know, Jim Wright replaced Tip O'Neill as speaker. Wright was very strategic, very ruthless, I think, in a lot of ways, how he was going to use a speakership. He would hold votes open, something Tom DeLay would do years later and drive Democrats nuts with. Well, Jim Wright did it in 1987. And it was, in fact, it was right after Wright held a particular vote open. It was on a tax hike that he wanted, and Republicans thought they had the votes to stop him. Wright won by one, uh, excuse me, the Republicans won by one vote to stop him. And they're celebrating on the House floor. The clock goes down to zero, they got the votes, and then it's not called. And there's, there's Wright ordering that the votes stay open, and he gets a Democrat from Texas to come back from his office, a Democrat who Wright you know, helped fund, get him into office in the first place. Democrat comes to the chamber and says, you know what, I've reconsidered, I'm voting yes. Boom, bill passes. And that was, it was like a week after that that Newt Gingrich held his press conference to announce he was going to file an ethics complaint against Jim Wright over his book royalties. And I think it's, that was a, such a key moment because that was like shooting a general. It wasn't done in Congress. You didn't go after the speaker on ethics charges. I mean, today, that no, people wouldn't think anything of it. This was the first time. 1987, when Gingrich launches this war on Jim Wright, and he does it after that moment I just described. And it's so important because the Republican leadership would have reined him in. At that moment, had the power to rein him in. And if it hadn't been for that moment, I think they would have. But they were so angry at Jim Wright. They were feeling it too. They weren't going to join. They weren't going to sign up and put their names on Newt's thing, not at first at least. But they were, you know what? Maybe it's good to have the attack dog out there doing this Jim Wright. Maybe he deserves it. And that's all he needed. I And I also love the fact, like, for example, when you had Newt, I learned a lot of this was a great history lesson for me, like how he blasted Connie Chung after that interview where it was revealed that he called Hillary Clinton a bitch. I, I thought that was, and then also using derogatory terms for a woman and that kind of going, just that's not the issue, even though it is an issue. And then he lied about the drug use and, and it was just a straight lie in the Clinton administration. Just kind of the foundation he set, just you can lie, you can 
derogatory terms about women will kind of go next door and then lying talking about the lying media kind of and 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 it was this is the this is the, the moments you're describing too um i think are important because they're all the dividing line in newt's career i think one of the big ones obviously is 1994 because 94 is the Republican Revolution, and he leads them to where he's been telling them for years he's going to lead them, the congressional majority, which they never thought they were going to get, and he becomes Speaker of the House. And the, the key there is Newt, Newt's vision was to nationalize politics and make it a choice between these two parties. And at that point, he had succeeded, like he had half succeeded. The whole country was revolting against Clinton and the Democratic Party, and it was enough to make Gingrich Speaker. And Gingrich figures, now we're going to run him out of town. We're going to run Clinton out of town. We're going to run the Democratic Party into extinction. But because of that success, Newt Gingrich now is suddenly a national figure, international figure, in a way he'd never been before. And what Newt Gingrich was for the first time to the average voter in this country was the face of the Republican Party. And that meant the things you're describing, they're hearing. Washington had been hearing him talk this way for a long time. The average voter is hearing Newt Gingrich talk this way for the first time. Call Bill and Hillary Clinton counterculture McGovernics. You know, talk about there had been this, this tragic incident in, in South Carolina in the 94 election, this, this, in 94, uh, 1994, where this, this woman had drowned her children, and Gingrich connected it casually in an interview to politics about why this is the need to elect, you know, Republicans. These things flew under the radar on his way to the top. When he got to the top in Congress, every time he said that, people heard it, people reacted. And what happened was he he so successfully made... Bill Clinton and liberal Democrats, the face, you know, the, the, this, this boogeyman that Republicans could, could draw strength from, he became the boogeyman the Democrats suddenly drew strength from on the other side, and, and half the country kind of sided up with one and half kind of with the other. You know, I'm wondering if Bernie Sanders was the canary in the coal mine for Democrats this time around the way that Pat Buchanan was back in the 90s. Mm. And I'm wondering if the party's going to go in the direction that Bernie wants it to go because, well, he didn't succeed. To me, he's got the biggest parallel going with Pat Buchanan of all in terms of the ideological... Um, effects that he had on the party going forward. And I remember saying to somebody before the election, I was convinced Hillary was going to win, but I said, but if she doesn't win, which is obviously impossible, which means that my prognostication skills are uh, being retired for the rest of my life, but I said, um, the party will go through a huge crisis because it's going to be the crisis of the same thing that the Republicans went through in the 90s, where you have the very liberal wing of the party at war with the more establishment wing of the party, the way you had with Bush and Buchanan. And I wonder if that's a good analogy in your mind, somebody who studied the 90s the way that you did? Yeah, I wonder. So the, the thing I'd say on Buchanan is that the message that he had, there clearly was an economic component to it. It was, it was you know, manufacturing jobs, trade deals, you know, it was, it was, it was that. Um, pitchfork Pat, they called him, right? Um, but it was also, it was a cultural message, you know? Um, and I think the Bernie message to me is an economic message. And I, I think there's my read of the Democratic Party um, is there's 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 two forces that are competing now that I see. One is economic, one's cultural. Bernie, I think, sort of embodies the, the energy on economic questions right now. It's towards this idea of Medicare for all. It's towards a more expansive government. It's towards less skepticism about the role of government. Those, those sorts of things. Um, and it's very, I think, class based. Um, I think there's a there's a very strong cultural current that. I'm not sure, and I'm curious what you think, I'm not sure he's in touch with or I'm not sure likes him that much that's about um, gender, race, ethnicity, 
expanding the Democratic tent that way that, that's very in, invested in um, representation and, you know, um, he, of course, struggled so much in 2016 to attract non-white votes, especially African-American votes in the South. Um, if he'd just done, you know, I don't know if he could have not even fought Clinton to a draw, but just done a little, I mean, he, it might have been a very different race. Um, and I wonder which side there has the, you know, has more energy. Um, I don't have an answer for it. It's just, that's my read. That's kind of what I'm watching for, I guess. Yeah, but to some extent, if you think about Buchanan in the 90s, um, he, while he, he did have a populist economic message, maybe not populist the way Perot did, but an economic message, I think he put a template for the Republican Party that later George Bush's son, to some extent, followed. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly Donald Trump, um, who's now the de facto face and has taken over the party in ways that I think nobody, no president in my memory has ever taken over a party, maybe Bill Clinton in the early 90s. But if you look at Clintonism now, that's not the case anymore. I'm not right. sure Clintonism has a place in the party the way Bill Clinton envisioned it 20 years ago. Um, Pat Buchanan today, uh, or excuse me, Pat Buchanan back in 1992, I think, had a much more interesting message where he was, as I said, the harbinger for what was to come. And I'm wondering if Bernie Sanders, in that sense, from an economic message, has that to come as well. Yes, Bernie Sanders is another old white guy um, from Vermont. He's never going to be another Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, or Cory Booker, or Hillary Clinton, for that matter. But he's also somebody who spoke to issues that I think millennials really responded to yeah. um, in ways that you wouldn't think a 70-year-old white guy would. And Pat Buchanan well, he's did got, as well. Yeah, he's got, he's got the ideological program. That's, I, I think Buchanan had just whatever you thought of him in the 90s, he had a very detailed, thought-out, specific program. And Sanders, I think, in a way a lot of other Democrats doesn't, has this very detailed, specific program that and it's one he was talking about 20 years ago, he's talking about now, and it, it raises the question, is this, is this the kind of template, the kind of blueprint that somebody could pick up a decade or two from now? And, and you know, it, maybe it'll, it'll be a straight through line from here to there, but, you know, maybe it's something somebody could pick up 10, 20 years from now in a way that some of these other um, candidates who are more maybe personality-based in their appeal, you know, what's there when you take the actual candidate away. Well, that's true, know? because I'm not really sure what imprint Barack Obama or George Bush, George Walker Bush, yeah. left on their respective parties. I mean, they just happened to be presidents, but I'm not sure that they left an imprint the way that Ronald Reagan did, for example, yeah. the way Bill Clinton did. Well, and Bush, I mean, the war, I mean, that's, it's, 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 it's the, the contested legacy. It's the, you know, like, um, but right. I mean, the, the, the original Bush vision of compassionate conservatism and what that entailed is not. Yeah. There's no Bushism for either Bush for that matter, neither right. his father nor him. Right. I think. So I kind of have a question for both of you. How do we move forward from this tribalism? Do you see that happening? In the next couple of years, Julian, Steve, I don't, I don't. Are you optimistic? No, <laughs> I don't. And I think you wrote the book as to why. No, I, I, I wish I could now sound the optimistic note, but like, I feel like the, the, the thought that kept coming back to me um, doing this was as humans were hardwired in a certain degree, to a certain degree, to be tribal, to think tribally, to behave tribally. And I think to me, the thing that's happened over the last generation or so is that our our, our media and our politics and the way our media and our politics interact with each other, um, they, they've evolved in a way that's much more conducive to tribalism. And so you don't, you can create for your, your own personal media ecosystem now. Um, 
where you are walled off from opinions you don't want to hear or views you don't want to hear mm -hmm. and you're just surrounded by ones that you do and it just it reinforces everything and it creates more distance and it's all self-perpetuating um and yeah I, I i don't know i don't know the way what the way out of that is except the idea that we all we do seem to have some some sort of agreement out there that this isn't healthy I, I hear Republicans say that and I hear Democrats say that. They have different reasons why and different people they blame, but they all, there does seem to be some agreement it's not healthy. So maybe, you know, there, there's some way that 20 years from now, we, we look back at this period and say it was just this necessary, ugly, painful sorting out that got us somewhere better. I just don't know how to envision what the what the somewhere better is. Just get, I mean, just it, it's not even media. It's getting to the point where it's just technology where it's like, if, if you're politically inclined at all, uh, and that isn't everybody in the country. I realize that, but like, if you are, it's in your face every minute now. You know, and, and you almost you you, know, it's, you 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 turn on your phone and you you, you tweet. You you stare at five tweets that make you enraged at the other side and remind you why you're on this side. And it's just it's just it's being reinforced moment to moment in, in all these different ways. I don't know. I don't know how to break through. All right. That. Well, let's end on a positive note. Yeah. <laughs> so we have this game called um, Two Truths and a Lie. Okay. And you are supposed to tell us. I hope you came ready. Your two truths and one lie. I have a college diploma, okay? I, um, what was the second one here, wait a minute. I have a college diploma. Um, my license has never been suspended, okay? And, um, I was rejected from Notre Dame when I applied for college. I'm going to guess that the one lie is that you have a college diploma. Do Emily? I answer or do no, I? No, no. I'm, I'm going to go with the lie is you never got your license suspended. Do we answer now? Yeah. The lie is that, that, I, that uh, I have a college diploma. I didn't know I that. I do not have a college diploma. Wow. It's very technical. Um, but um, on graduation day, the week before graduation from Boston University, um, I ran out of money. And Julie knows what this is. They had the meal points thing at BU. And I, I picked up the phone in the cafeteria and charged $25 for meal points. And um, I had five sandwiches for the rest of the week. And then at graduation, you get an envelope. It's got your diploma in it. And mine was empty. <laughs> <laughs> they literally pulled the diploma out at the last minute because I owed the school 25 bucks. For Boston University, sandwiches. which is, And yeah. I'm sorry, I know in principle you're not paying that 25 so, bucks. So they I started, know right, they started uh, sending, I, and my, so my mom is there, she's waited all, you know, she wants the picture. So I, I got my friend's diploma, I got a picture with me and my mom and my friend's diploma in the middle. I, I said, there's, they, they sent me over to this lady at the tent and she was like, you know, call me in two weeks, I'm going on vacation. I said, I need the diploma now, I'll give you 25 bucks right now. Uh, wouldn't take it. So then BU starts sending me these bills. Um, to my parents' house, and I, I told my mom, she's like, don't you want to pay for it? I said, collect every bill that they send, and when they've spent more than $25 in postage sending it, I'll send $25 back, and I'll say, here's your 25 bucks, cost you 25 20 to get it, now give me my diploma. What happened was they stopped sending the bills after three years. All right, so. Boston <laughs> University is a fellow alum. I'm offended, and I'm embarrassed, and 
please send Steve Kornacki's college diploma, <laughs> or I'll just send you 25 bucks and he won't know oh, about I, it. Oh, I had a friend who tried to offer them $25 to get it for me. They wouldn't do it. Are you kidding? I'm not, I'm not Why kidding. Why not? It has to be your 25 bucks? I, I think bucks? so. I don't, you know. I can't, like, in kind, I can't in kind contribute gonna, 25 bucks to you? He was going to give it to me as a birthday present, like, five years later, right. and they wouldn't release the it. The next time I'm in Boston and I'm on Commonwealth Avenue and I go <laughs> up to 820, which is where I believe that was all housed, I'm going to give them 25 bucks and tell them this is an honor of Steve Kornacki. Send him the damn diploma. Thank you so, so much for Thank being you. here. Thank you. This is great fun. Um, yeah. This is great. Right. And um, again, The Red and the Blue by Steve Kornacki. Please buy the book. And we will see you again next week. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. All right, Julie, what an interview we had with Steve. Now we actually have set up a great follow-up with him when you get him his diploma. Yeah, I guess Steve can't afford the 75 bucks. If anybody from MSNBC is listening, can you at least give the guy a couple hundred bucks extra so he can afford that diploma? Or else I guess I'm going to have to go up to Boston next time I'm at some alumni event and go to Commonwealth Avenue and beg BU to give Steve Kornacki his diploma. Um, Emily, what makes you salty this week? Well, what Trump's kind of what his administration is doing for transgender people, it's not right, and uh, pretty much erasing them uh, from the books. And, you know, you don't, you don't have to be transgender. You just have to understand that humans are humans. And, and the fact that he's doing this, I think, is setting us back many, many years. The intended consequence of this is ridiculous, but it's also malicious, and it's petty, and it's cruel, and Donald Trump cut it out. Um, I'll tell you what's making me salty. It's Ted Cruz, no surprise. He makes me salty every day. But I gotta say, um, and this is not so much political as it is kind of moral, here you've got Donald Trump who really insulted Ted Cruz in the worst way possible. Not Ted Cruz, actually, insulted Ted Cruz's wife, um, retweeting a meme about her looks versus Melania's, um, which compared to Melania, I think, uh, she's a stunning woman, so it's not a really fair comparison for most people, but really insulting Huddy Cruz um, and her looks, uh, and then also saying that Ted Cruz's father was responsible for the Kennedy assassination or, or participated in the Kennedy assassination. Uh, really, Ted Cruz, is your election so important that you'll stand on stage with Donald Trump and pretend that you guys are best friends? I mean, for the sake of your family, like what message are you sending to your kids where a husband won't stand up for his wife. And if you can't stand up for your family, if you can't stand up for your dad and your wife, I mean, what are you doing? Nobody's asking you to put a cape over a puddle for your wife, but maybe at least don't high five and stand on a stage next to the guy that insulted her and your dad. Awesome. All right. Um, I think this was an amazing first podcast. I'm super excited. Next week, we've got Evan Zekreed for coming up, um, who is a uh, Republican just for balance. Uh, and we look forward to chatting with you next week. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.